welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Building sandcastles on the beaches of Massachusetts, it turns out, is the perfect way to start a lifelong love with making. That episode 40 guest, Mark Del Judas, continues to this day. Growing up in a working class family that was short on experiences in the arts, but long on nurturing, was probably at the heart of psychology student turned supermarket manager's discovery of his hands as the tool he wanted to most work with. After then finding the Boston University program in artisanry and becoming the last student to enroll in it before it went defunct, Mark then went on to join some of the well-known woodworking co-ops of the Boston area to start his journey. His aha moment occurred when, as an avid gardener, he built himself a gardening cabinet and adorned it with Morse code and made-up hieroglyphics. This became a way for him to say something without having to say something. So as we struggle to pronounce his name, we do not struggle to get him to talk about a career that embraces the creation of a language of self-expression. The most important question for our guest right now is, how do you pronounce your name? Mark Del Judas. Wait, that's not right. The whole Ita- no, it was anglicized. The Italian family, my, everybody I meet with my name, and there's not a lot of them, but I've met them. Mm-hmm. Um, they all say Del Judas. And Del Judice is how it's, it's pronounced in Italian, but nobody uses that. You've also given us 15 other pronunciations to your name. Del Useless. Del Useless, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Mark Del Useless. You can, Roseanne Summerson, she gets credit for that one. Anyways, Why Make would like to welcome Mark Degidice. Is that is that even in the del, ballpark? Del, del Judice. Del Judice. Fine. Otherwise, okay. Del Judas, like J-U-D-A-S. Anyways, Mark, we, we've, we've hammered that into the ground, so we'll, we'll leave that. Now comes the tough part. So uh, this, the way we open up all our Why Make sessions is that we ask our guests, what's their first memory of making something? I've listened to it from some of the podcasts you've done. So my, uh, I heard you say that you had Tonka toys. I did and have I, Tonka toys. Yeah, I had a group of Tonka toys. Um, I was born in New Rochelle, New York, so I lived in Mount Vernon, which is next door for a while, in an apartment building, and there was a sand pile in the parking lot for the winter, and I'd be out there with my Tonka toys for hours, just kind of like creating all kinds of scenarios. Um, I heard you talking about snow forts. Um, yeah. <laughs> I lived, when, I, when we moved to Long Island, I was on a dead-end street. They just came down the street with all the snow. They built left- them for you. Pretty much. Yeah, we, we, we were really tunnelers, really. Uh, that's exactly what we were. We were tunnelers. That was the that was the that was the big part of this of uh, the snow fort was the amazing tunnels. And after they froze over and the tunnels froze, it was uh, it was just a wondrous thing. And then I was also at the beach all the time. And so I was building all kinds of sandcastles and forts and you know, I I um, I still do sculptures at the beach as an adult. I'll, I'll I could name a bunch of them I've done, but if I find a, if I find a an object that's prolific, like uh, one day I went to the beach and there was all these uh, quahog shells. Mm-hmm. So my girlfriend and I created a. There was a local airport, so we created this twenty foot diameter peace sign 
on the beach with all the quahog shells. Right. Another time there, there was it was early in the season. The trash was all up and down the beach, plastic everywhere. So I took all these sticks that I found. There's a lot of sticks blown up, all kinds of stuff on the beach. And I, I created a four foot diameter corral that was about two or three feet high. And I went up and down the beach, dragging a bucket I found on the beach. I filled it with plastic, went back and dumped it. I filled the whole corral with plastic, just trash plastic. It was a great statement. People were going by and it was like, you know, when you see it all at once, as opposed to the bottle there, a bottle there, yeah. that kind of stuff. So I still do that kind of thing because I used to, you know, and the other part is when you're at the beach and you make something, it'll eventually disappear. Mm-hmm. So I love making things down at the water, you know, at the um, water's edge and watching the water have its effect on it. One of my most amazing experiences as a small child building um, sandcastles, and we we spent just about every summer because um, my dad was a marine biologist. We spent just about every summer in Woods Hole. Um, and when I figured out that you could combine seaweed with sand, and you could make <laughs> something much more structural, and I remember we made something at low tide. It survived high tide, and it was the remnants of there of it were there at low tide again. And it was an amazing thing. It was like, wow, it survived. I did that with my sister, and it was it was incredible. I don't know if you want a history of things because my background is I there was no art per se. Like the, I have to go back three generations to any artists in my family. Well, it was my uncle Joe, my father, my grandfather's uncle. So um, what did he, what did what did he do? What was his art? He was a Hudson Valley painter. Huh? You familiar with Hudson Valley painting? Uh, the air the area, but not the painting. It's, is it actually, a, it's a school of painting, Hudson Valley painting? School of painting in the 1800s. Okay. It, it kind of was all natural with some people in it. Like I have a painting across the room and it has a little kid crossing the stream with his horse in the woods. Huh. Um, but it, it basically glory, you know, romanticized the Hudson Valley. Um, and it was a whole strew of people that were doing this. So, so without any art, and there was no art in school, my parents were not artistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would do things. I, I had a half bath in my bedroom with my brother. I shared a bedroom with my brother. We had a half bath. So when I was a young teenager, I covered the whole bathroom with, uh, I wallpapered it with uh, road maps, ceiling walls, the whole thing. I actually got away with it because my mother could close the door and not show it to anybody. <laughs> you know, I did things with buddies. We made Super 8 films. We were blowing things up with firecrackers and stuff. Or, and then in high school, I used to do chalk faces. I'd sit there bored and I'd take a pin and I would carve faces into white chalk. I really wish I had one. Oh, but wow. Really not. teeny. Yeah, I had a little leftovers, but that was it. It was enough to keep your mind busy and interested. Yes, but it's, um, well, it goes, it goes to the, the rest of the story kind of goes that, you know, um, high school was geared towards college education. Mm-hmm. Um, I faulted around Long Island for a couple of years doing um, the community college thing. Moved to Boston and went to what was then Boston State College is now part of the UMass system. And I took psychology and personnel administration and I graduated. And with the personnel administration, the psych thing, I was interested in psychological testing. Northeastern University was down the street. I went down there. They had a a testing center. I took a series of tests and um, a counselor, whatever that I had, Asked, you know, said, how about we throw in a uh, an art aptitude test just for for fun? 
And uh, I ended up scoring kind of like on the 85th percentile on the art aptitude test without any art background at all, no training or whatever. Wow. So, um, so I ignored that. <laughs> and, I, and I went to work as a, uh, as a supermarket manager because I had worked my way through school. I come from a working class background. So I worked my way through school. Actually, I've done it twice, but I went, became a supermarket manager. But, um, you know, I've got the, I actually have, the, I still have the tests that I took. And I was um, in the top 5% for mechanical reasoning. I was probably in the 80% for visualization. It's, it's fun to look back at this. And then there was the, you know, the personality stuff, like what you could be, what you could do with yourself. So um, it says here, I'd be a good drafter. And I did take a drafting course. I'd make a good police officer. But, you know, it's fun to see this stuff. I mean, this is not the Bible. I mean, it's just it's a snapshot in time. But um, the point of that story is that I ignored the test, and now here I am. I've been making my living as an artist for thirty-five years, something like that. Now, now you're making big Rorschach tests for everybody to look at. That's right. Uh, what was that path you took then that led you to the program and artisanry at BU then? How did you go from uh, how did you go from grocery store manager to uh, going essentially to craft school? Between my junior and senior year at Boston State, uh, my girlfriend, um, she her sister is married to this guy, and they uh, were building a house just west of Boston, in a suburb of Boston. And he asked me, Jim, her uh, brother-in-law, asked me to work with him that summer. So I went out uh, his family land. And we cleared uh, at least a half acre, if not more. We were there for a week with chainsaws in our hands and uh, cleared it. Uh, the excavator came in, dug it. Uh, we poured a foundation. I worked on every aspect of that house all the way through that summer. In fact, back then, he was paranoid. He was kind of a paranoid personality. If you didn't have your lumber nailed, it could get stolen and it wouldn't be covered by insurance. So he asked me to sleep on the property. I used to sleep in a tent over on the side. And his mother's house where he lived was down the street. And I'd go down there for a shower or something like that, go for breakfast. Um, but it was great. That was the summer I woke up to my hands. That's where I kind of learned that I liked working with my hands and making things with my hands. Um, and when I finished that out, I still had a year of college. I had a lot of buddies and they all were into their stereos. In fact, all through college, I never owned a stereo. All my roommates had the best stereos ever. I just kind of rode the wave, right? So I'm making stereo cabinets for these guys. And then I started making furniture for myself because I couldn't afford any furniture. I had no furniture. I made a bed. I made a desk. Uh, I put together some dressers. I stripped the dresser. You know, just that whole thing. So I got into it sort of as a need after waking up to I liked making things. So um, I'm working for Star Market. I'm running their second busiest store, the front end of their second busiest store. You know, all the cashiers and beggars. I had 76 employees. And I went to, a, I was a service manager. And I went to a service manager meeting. I'm looking around the room and I couldn't relate to anybody in the room. Oh, I just said, well, I'm done. So I left that and I started putzing around looking for education and woodworking. So I found the wood shop at MIT, and that's where I made my first bed. Um, did the milling and stuff there, and worked it in the basement. I found, I took a course at Wentworth Institute, which was right close to Northeastern and where I went to school, and Wentworth was an engineering school. They had a woodworking thing, and I took a night course there where everybody made the same table. But 
I found a way to make mine a little differently, and I floated the top. We all lined up with the joiner. We all lined up with the mortiser. We all lined up with this or that, if I forget, and did that kind of thing. So I bouncing around doing that. I had a new girlfriend who became my wife, who became my ex-wife. She was working at BU as a secretary, and uh, she found the program in artisanry. So I went down and checked it out and got myself into it with very little woodworking background. Um, but uh, it turns out I was the last student accepted into the wood program when the program was at BU. So I don't know if you know about the program in artisanry. Um, it was started uh, in 75, I think. And James yeah. Cranoff was the one that they had hired to start it. And oh. he, he kind of failed miserably, but he did leave a nice stash of wood behind. Then they brought in Jerry Osgood. And my other instructor was Alphonse Mattia. And so we did, you know, um, semester projects. One semester would be carcass. Another semester would be making a chair. It was pretty intense. It was very competitive. There was some great woodworkers there. Who were some of your other classmates? Because you talked to some other people that have uh, been in the program in artisanry. And, and actually, we are working on a short documentary on Tommy Simpson, who taught an infamous short chair workshop in the program in artisanry there as well. So who were some of your classmates? I must have missed him there. See, I'm trying to think of who you would know. A lot of my classmates kind of went off in different directions. Um, the people that had been there before me, like James Schreiber. Do you know James Schreiber? Yeah. Tom, uh, Tom Hucker? I took a class from Tom Hucker at Anderson Ranch many, many years ago. And an amazing character. Yeah, he's an interesting character. I, yeah, I have a few Tom Hucker stories myself. Um, I actually have my my pipe, my uh, clamp rack. Is It was made by Tom Hucker. But uh, who else at BU? You know, I got to know, like, Tom Lozer. Mm -hmm. uh, but he did graduate school kind of later. I'm trying to think of who else would be notable. Mitch Ryerson, but I don't That's another maker I know. Well So you were you were in one of the very last classes? Yeah, so it was it was I got I went in um the fall semester of eighty four. Okay, so that was towards the very end. Spring semester, they walked in and told us that they were canceling the program. BU was. So there was a school in New Bedford called the Swain School of Art and Design, which had been there for like 100 years, 120 years, the Whaling Captain's Endowment thing. And they took us on and we sunk them. It was like they put too much cargo on the ship. Um, but it was great because I got some, some, you know, some drawing skills there. Although at BU, I did take a life drawing class. That was one thing. BU was great. You could take classes. You go over the museum stuff and you take classes in uh, 20th, 20th, 19th century furniture and dressing codes and stuff like that. That's nice. Go outside your box a little bit. Absolutely. So, so Swain was nice, but it was, it was an art school geared towards the high school graduate, whereas the program in artisanry, the average student was like 30. At the average age or late 20s. And everybody came to the program. I went in as an undergraduate, but we all came to the program with a lot of life experience. We weren't, you know, high school schmucks anymore. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're grown schmucks. <laughs> so Swain, the programming was a little soft for me. So I spent a year down there, I actually helped move the program during the summer between BU and Swain. I actually worked um, doing that. And uh, 
It was an old mill building they started off in. They moved, since moved it to an old supermarket or no, a, a, a department store that was there. So I left. I, uh, I graduated BU with a, some kind of a furniture design degree and, uh, and went to work at, uh, for Jamie Robertson. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but I went to work for him at the Emily Street um, Co-op. And the Emily Street Co-op was a pretty busy place with a lot of funky people. Judy McKee was in there. Um, uh, John Everdale, who I don't think you know, was in there. Mitch Ryerson. So Judy, John, and Mitch were part of what they called New Hamburger. It's kind of a hippie-ish approach to making furniture for the for the masses, but that didn't last too much. Then Judy started to get a lot of recognition just for her artistic skill and such. And she just, much, you know, she's just a wonderful person. Tom Lozer was down there. Tom Hucker I knew from through Callie Fawcett, who was one of my classmates at, at uh, PIA. So you were surrounded by a lot of wonderful creative folks. So did that really, really spur you on, kind of encourage you to to make and just get jazzed up about things? Um, confluence of circumstances. That's my, my latest little quip. Um, it's being in the right place at the right time. It's just all the different things you can't control that come together that basically make your experience. I, I like calling it, I like hearing you call it that instead of just being like, ah, it's just fate. Yeah. Confluence no. of circumstances sounds, I like that much more scientific. Yeah. I, I had a friend who years ago was a uh, underwater photographer and he talked about the sea anemones were really bigger and brighter and more wonderful at the river mouths as opposed to other places in the ocean. And they just happened to be in the right place where there's a lot of food and they, they grew, they nurtured, you know, they were nurtured. And they uh, and I feel that way about my experiences as I was in the right place at the right time. And it was all happenstance. I mean, my wife found the program, but it fits. It kind of, you know, you can almost get mystical about it, you know, faith, like you said, but, but it kind of fits. It kind of all, you know, but you, you develop it. It happens by your participation and what's there in front of you. Yeah. I mean, you, you, the ride comes along, but you have to hold on and you've got to make sure that you don't fall off of it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I, you know, I'm not that big a believer in fate. I, I do believe, though, that you choose a path and once you follow it, good things can happen. So you choose the you chose the path of going to PIA and you know, that just so happens there's a wonderful community of makers in Boston and you fell in with them. Right. Yeah. You've got to make you know, the best of it. That's the process of making things. You know, you, you follow the path you, you, and you do it well. I mean, I did get that from my upbringing to do things well. Mm-hmm. And so you apply that and it, it, it works. So were you in this co-op with, uh, with Judy McKee and these other people or you just visited? I was working for Jamie Robertson and Jamie. Jamie was in this co-op? Yes, he was. Okay. I just want to get the circumstance. Did I hear you correctly? It was called New Hamburger, like hamburger eating hamburger or? Well, the, the co-op, the co-op was called Emily Street. Okay. Because it was on Emily Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. New Hamburger was a subgroup. Everybody had little sections here. Um, I gotcha. They, and New Hamburger was where Judy McKee, John Everdale, and Mitch Ryerson mm-hmm. uh, were located, and they were right next to me and 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 Jamie Robertson. Yeah, I worked for Jamie for what a year, year and a half, and I met somebody there who was opening up a shop. I met a RISD guy 
So I got really tied in with RISD people as well, especially as mm -hmm. part of PIA was that they had their graduate program at RISD going. And we were, as undergraduates, we were almost on the level of the graduates at, at RISD and said so yeah. the things we were making and doing. Um, so I got to meet like Tay Frid and Seth Stam um, mm -hmm. through RISD. And so I met this guy, Everett Bramhall. Yeah. He and his buddy, uh, Mark Hazel, were opening up a shop. They found a space in Norwood, Massachusetts, which was halfway between Boston and Providence. Everett was in um, Boston and Mark was in Providence at the time. And so I joined them and we started our little co-op of about five guys. Um, and I was in that building for 25 years. Wow. And they left after a while. They, they got into uh, products that were made in China and selling them mm -hmm. in the United States and they got very rich. Um, but, um, but anyway, they were my link to, to RISD and a lot of people at RISD. So I got to know, you know, Roseanne Summerson and um, Dale Broholm. Um, oh, just names. Um, there's a few others that I'm not going to come up with right away. So I kind of, I, I started out when I went into school, I was, it was postmodernism. So I was doing a bunch of postmodern pieces. And then, oh, it's probably in the mid-90s, late-90s, I was going through a divorce. I started to do, I did a cabinet, a garden cupboard. I had a, I had a huge vegetable garden. I still do. I'm a, I'm a gardener. I was canning everything, and I built myself a cabinet for it. And I decorated the cabinet with what you might call hieroglyphs and Morse code. And that's when I kind of flipped and started uh, doing more artistic expression, um, a little bit of content, a lot of color. Although at BU, I, I, my cabinet that I did at the carcass semester was, uh, was all painted with some gilding and very postmodern. I'm kind of curious what postmodern meant to you in terms of how you approached it from a design sense, because people throw that word around a lot, yet nobody, I don't think anybody really has a good grasp on its meaning. What, did, what kind of work were you doing as you left PIA in terms of how you would describe it as postmodern? Yes. So a lot of the postmodern that I was influenced by was um, architecture. So it was like Michael Graves and... Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Toro Sats, I mean, Toro Sats, the Memphis people. Yes, thank you. And um, so I was making things that were form juxtapositions. I like that painted cabinet. The top was floating, and I had two gold bars. They were gilded bars running underneath it, separating it from the from the carcass itself. The poles had, you know, um, double line brass bars going through them. Um, the bottom was reeded and blocks on the corner. So it was a very geometric, simplified, but bold and colorful look to, that I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, um, I built a piece, a, a dressing station, which had a little, had a, a roof. Uh, there was a patinaed copper, and it had an oculus at the top, just a little window, and it was lit, and underneath was hammered glass, and it, the top was separated from the from the carcass, um, there was another. You know, it was very architectural. I, I'd have to dig up a photo of it. It's I have an old photo of it that's on uh, on transparency. My career went from transparencies to digital. Transparencies and negatives to digital, you know, like midway. So um, some of that older stuff is like kind of old, an old format. I, I it's on my list to scan and and, and bring back a little bit. So right after that sort of uh, that period of architectural work 
is when you started to literally develop your own language, this, this language of uh, hieroglyphs. And, and, and yes, it's a hard word to say, hieroglyphs <laughs> and Morse code. What do, you, what do you think kicked that off? What, what inspired literally developing, well, Morse code was a, was a language, but uh, a language nobody knows. Very, very few military and military. We'll deal with the Morse code real quick. Uh, the Morse code was the garden cupboard. That's when I first used it. And I wanted to say all these things about love, but I didn't want to be obvious about it. I, I wasn't going to carve letters in or paint letters. And so I did the Morse code where I could say something without having to really say something or I wouldn't have to own it in a way, I guess. Um, fun thing is when I, you know, people see my work, and I'll get these older guys that were in the Signal Corps in the Army, and they only understand Morse code audibly. They don't understand it visually. I use it visually, so I've transcribed it a little bit. And a little quick side thing, Cape Cod, as a kid, all my life, Wellfleet is where the um, Morse, Morse sent his first code across the ocean. Oh. When I was a kid, the towers were there. We played around the four towers that he used. And now those towers are about 100 yards out of the water. Because the Cape Cod is Cape Cod is shrinking, it's the sand is being removed. Anyway, going back to the Cape Cod, uh, the Morse code, um, these guys will see it, and so what they'll start to do is they'll just start to go that 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 they they, they pronounce it so they can audibly um, read it. For me, it was an opportunity, and I still use it for make you know putting in quotes, putting in messages, um, saying things that are relevant to the piece, or saying things that are relevant to me. At the, you know. On beds, I'll put Morse code like "Sweet Dreams," things like that. That's really cool. You can you put the intention in it without directly telling people. That I, I love that. It makes a great pattern too. I've worked with the pattern a lot, and uh, I've kind of messed with it in different ways. I still have a bunch of ideas on how to lay it out um, in in that regard. And it's it's, it's almost secret. I also I'm messing with the historians too. If any of this survives. Um, you know, they're going to be like, what's this What's this pattern here? Oh, yeah, my little Rosetta Stone or something. Right. Are you, so are you, are you fluent in Morse code or do you have to uh, sit down? No, I, I can't tell you what's I – can, I can do some of it. Um, when I use it, when I'm writing it out, laying it out, all that, then I, it all comes back to me. But I don't memorize it per se, no. So sometimes people ask me, what is the point of something? Say, what does that mean? And I'm like, uh, you know, I go back to the folder. I keep folders in all of my work. Uh, I wrote a funny note to myself when sort of wondering why you use Morse code and not another language that uh, that nobody uses or knows anymore. <laughs> because when my sister growing up wanted to hide stuff from me, she'd say it in Pig Latin to all her friends. And and this is a, it's a similar notion in the sense that you don't want to say it, but you want to say it. And so you use a a largely unknown language, uh, uh, but I do get the historical reference, obviously. I mean, Morse code was the standard means of telegraph communication for 60, 70 years until voice communication came about. It was a huge maritime thing. Yeah. I love listening to you talking about your furniture because, I mean, I'm, I'm making discoveries as we speak about your work. When I first heard about it, it was through um, a teacher that taught both Eric and I, Wayne Rabb, at Haywood Community College. And, you know, I saw your work in 2003 and 2004 and was attracted to to the beauty of the symbols that you created. Because it was this, 
this confluence of different shapes that all worked well together, but I didn't dive in deeper to realize what you were saying. And now discovering what you're saying, like, I, I want to go back and look at like everything you've done and like revisit all of it. It's, it just adds so much more depth to what you've, what you're creating. Well, yeah. I mean, it's telling the story that's in inside of me, so to speak. Yeah. And it's also the, the, and then this goes to the hieroglyphs particularly. It's mm -hmm. how, you know, art is in a sense, how people respond to it, how they experience it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do all this like, and we can get into the hieroglyphs, but I do all this stuff and people respond to it differently. I'll ask three people, I'll point to one image and ask three people what they see and I'll get three different explanations. You know, going back to the Rorschach test kind of thing. And, and so I really like that aspect. I mean, these things mean something to me and then I let it go. I don't ever explain to anybody in a sense mm -hmm. what's there. I'll give them a few, but they're abstracted images. They are simplified images. So I'm kind of, it's sort of coming from my subconscious. Mm -hmm. I kind of sketch these things and they just kind of come out. And then I realize sort of what they have as an essence. You know, one of them means a relationship to me. Um, another, you know, there's a lot of faces in there. And sometimes the faces are a group of hieroglyphs. So it's, it's a, I hate to use the word doodling, but it's sort of on that level. Except for I have a little more of a artistic doodle than some. You know, and if you ever see anybody who's doodling an image and they keep doing the same thing on top of that image, let's say they draw a star and they keep drawing the star, drawing the star, drawing the star, they've got a lot of anxiety. I mean, that's just kind of like the psychologists <laughs> have figured that out. Oh, uh, my sketchbook's like that. I guess I'm anxious. This is a psychoanalyzing session. Thanks, Mark. I didn't realize we'd get into this. There's a bunch of articles out there. There's reasons why people do it. But one of the things, too, is, you know, when you doodle and stuff like that, you actually think better. And it reduces the anxiety in your brain. It kind of helps you remember. So, and I remember seeing this on 60 Minutes once. Hey, um, what's his name? Andy Rooney? Yeah, of all places. Well, I believe it from him. Yeah. He, he and one of his assistants would be on the phone and they'd be doodling and doodling and doodling. But the point was that they were focused on what they were. You don't think they're focused, but that actually helps your focus. It helps you remember. I mean, I think you said an important thing that these doodles are coming out of your subconscious and you're actually creating a narrative. I think the beauty of your work is, is that there's a narrative in this symbology. And I mean, personally, I believe the strongest work, whether it be craft work or fine artwork, all horrible terms. But I mean, a narrative where this is coming from you, this work has greater depth than a table with four legs, a a cabinet with two doors. There is a narrative here and the viewer gets to interpret what that narrative is. Whether it's your narrative or not is, is it, it neither here nor there. And that's the beauty of this symbology. It's kind of like your own version of ASL in some ways. The way ASL has just sort of grown into these into this this wonderful series of visual symbols that, you know, deaf people express themselves with. Um, it's an emotional and a visual language. Um, I'm not getting the acronym. American Sign Language. Sign Language, too. Sorry. I actually had a chance to do some work with um, uh, Winston-Salem. Um, oh, shoot. I forgot exactly what it was called, but it's a, the uh, Institute of the Blind. And 
I was able to do a bunch of, of work with um, with Braille, incorporating Braille into some mostly like 2D pieces, but they were they were really, really interesting to be able to make them so that um, people could go up to them and read them. Do you know Peter Parabon? Yeah, yeah. His his work is really interesting. So he's used, I've seen him use Braille. Um, I've seen him use some Morse code, I think. And I've also seen him use um, shorthand. You're right. Peter Parabon has some wonderful glyphs, and he uses symbology a lot in his work. I couldn't couldn't spell his name to save <laughs> save my life. I believe was he he was uh, was he a student of Wendell Castles at one point? I be- I think so. Yeah. I do think so. And I just want to go back to your point about the uh, you know infusing the work with stuff. Um, there's a key element to my life when I was um, twelve. Um, we I'm the oldest of five. And my parents made the decision to take in foster children. And so we took in babies out of the hospital. They were signed over before they were born. This is before Roe versus Wade. And we would have these babies for six to nine months, and then they would be adopted. And my mother did like 20-something babies over the years. But my teenage years from 12 to like, I left the house at 19, very quickly, by the way. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, that we, you know, there was always babies and we were always putting our energy into these babies. We were raising them. We were playing with them. We were changing their diaper and feeding them. And, and so I relate that very much to what I do now in terms of making things. Okay. Why do I make is because it's a, it's a chance for me, you know, it's something that's natural to me to put energy into something. And I like the concreteness of it. I like the fact that something is left behind that speaks to my moment of experience, so to speak. But you put a lot of energy into all of each of your pieces, physical energy, mental energy. Do you find it's draining as you you finish a piece and then get into the next one? You know what? I was just talking with a friend of mine down in Mexico for this wedding, and he is a he does a lot of public speaking. He has a TED talk. He gets in front of groups and organizations. He does he helps he helps boards think through things, and he refers to himself as an introvert. And you wouldn't think it the way I mean, he stood up in front of that wedding and, and, you know, praised his daughter and his new son-in-law. And you wouldn't think it at all. He explained to me that introverts, and in, you know, in his perspective, and I, I agree with him, is that introverts get their energy from being alone. And extroverts get their energy from being with other people. And so when I do these works, I mean, furniture is labor intensive. It's, it's been driving me crazy my whole life, running behind schedule. but. I actually, I get energized by it. I am wonderfully thrilled that I've done what I've done. I look at things, but I still get tired. I still get frustrated, um, but I still plot ahead. I'm, I'm also uh, a hiker. You guys are hikers too, I think, if I remember. So I know what it's like to throw a 50-pound pack on my back and climb climb mountains for a couple of days, you know, 4,000, 5,000 footers. I mean, I, I, I've done that. I, I, so I know to persevere. Till you get to the mm-hmm. top, you never turn around. And I like the challenge. I like the challenge of the furniture, and I, it's a great opportunity for me to kind of 
express my creative thinking. Stuff that I got in trouble for as a kid. So you're developing this, what we're, I guess what we're calling an, an intuitive hieroglyphs or this, this language of furniture. And this is in the like late 80s, early 90s that you're really kind of coming into this? It was the 90s when I started to develop. Talk about that period when you're, you're really finding your legs with this and how your world is, is working then and where you're going with it. Well, I was going through a lot of trauma. I went through a divorce. I ended up having back surgery. Um, I went bankrupt. Yeah, the uh, proverbial shit hit the fan. I, you know, I persevered and it's, you know, it's the old story of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So let's get a little into your, your process because I think another one of the amazing aspects of your work is the scale models you build. Um, incredibly precise scale models. And I'm just sort of curious where in your process that developed and is that a is that a key part of your process, or are you a are you an endless sketcher like I am? And the model is in many ways just sort of the last resort because you can't really sketch well enough to see it in three D. Or is this just a really enjoyable part of the process for you? <laughs> I I remember seeing pictures of your models and not realizing they were models, and thinking they were real pieces. There's a lot to the modeling. I've actually even uh, curated a show at the Fuller Craft Museum once called The Shape of Things to Come. And it was all model making. And the different ways people use model making, um, you know, uh, came out really well. Um, my beginnings were at PIA. And I caught wind of Art Espanier Carpenter. Mm -hmm. You know Art Carpenter's? Bolinas, yes. California. I actually had the chance to visit him once. Um, so I caught wind of him and his model making. When I went out to visit him, because uh, I was going out to CCAC to teach in the summers for like three years at the end of the 90s. And I went over to Bolinas and we went and met him. And he had a compound there, kind of like a, a whole bunch of buildings. Like he slept in one building. He cooked his kitchen. He cooked his breakfast in another building. He had his shop in one building. And then he had like his design building. It was an octagonal design building where he had all his models on the walls. And he used these models to, you know, to, to flush out designs and to show people what he was going to do. And so he was my initial inspiration to do that. Um, I've been doing models, not of everything, but of certain objects that I want to see three-dimensionally. But I can also tell you as a presentation tool, when I have a client, customer, whatever, and they say, make me something like this, and I'll come up with whatever my process is, I'll talk to them, I'll run some sketches by them, and we'll narrow it down, and then I'll kind of I'll flush one out that I really think would work that I want to do as well. And I'll make a model. When I make that model and I present that model to them, boom, sold. They get it because they can't see things, you know, they can't visualize like yeah. we can. The other aspect to it all is I have a, I keep them as my collection. I don't give them away. I don't sell them. So I actually have a collection of 40, 50 models. I have a, that garden cabin cabinet that I mm -hmm. built with the Morse code and such on it. That's upstairs in my living room, and it's full of models. It's just jam-packed. I, I have models in other places now as well. And this is, a, this is something I want to leave to my family. Wow. This is the, you know, this is going to be something that I would hope my daughter and subsequent generations keep mm -hmm. as a group. And um, and that would be to speak somewhat to my legacy. But I have fun, and I don't put any function in them. So and I used to take them. I thought, you know, oh, originally I thought, oh, great, salesman samples. I brought them to the shows. But, you know, I get comments like, look, honey, there's dollhouse furniture. 
I, uh, do, do you vary on your scale for the models or do you kind of stick to a certain scale? I started out mm -hmm. with quarter scale, but then I found that some of those furniture pieces were yeah. getting quite large. So I, I've gone years ago, I went to a one to six. Scale, oh, okay. And I try to stick, I try to stick to that. Um, so that all the models are in a, in a group. And I've actually done this. I brought, I'll bring a model to a customer and I'll bring some other models to show them the scale of things, kind of, you know, give them yeah. that idea. Um, so yeah, the one to six, I stick with that. So I do the math, you know, I end up pulling out the calculator and doing mm -hmm. all the math because I'll draw things out. So the process goes sketch, sketch, narrow it down. Um, something I got from Jerry Osgood was doing full-scale sketches on craft paper. So I have a roll of, I think it's 50-pound craft paper. And it's nice to draw on. And I have a flat table, my assembly table, um, where I put a fresh sheet, of a 4 by 8 sheet of uh, half-inch MDF. And I'll roll the paper out on that, tape it down. I have a plywood T-square that I made years ago. And I have my, you know, I have my standard drafting stuff and I'll draw a full scale and I'll do, sometimes I do it is I I'll stand it up and I'll just sketch full scale. I'll start and say, okay, I want this height, this happening here, this width. And I kind of do that. And then I straighten it all out and I'll start to use this, the curves and the straight lines and stuff. And I'll kind of clean it up a bit. Then I'll make the model off of that. I'll get my numbers and I'll scale it down. I'll make the model, and as I make the model, I'll make some changes, and I'll I'll make multiple parts and try them out, you know. And you know, so some models like my dining room table that I did, my wife is or Deb, we're not yet married, but very picky. So um, that model has six different legs on it, okay, six variations on the same theme, mm -hmm. so to speak. So I'll do that. So I'll try different parts, and then I'll make the model. I'll flush it out with the client, see what they like, what they don't like. I'll look at it myself and see what I think, don't like, whatever. And then I'll go back to that drawing and tweak it, get it just right. So I do have full-scale drawings. I have a cabinet in one of my rooms, and it's just filled with all these rolled-up craft paper drawings <laughs> and pencil. And I go back to them. Some of them, you know, some of the work I've done is for repetition, limited edition kind mm -hmm. of stuff. So I go back to the drawings. They're very accurate. I make notes on them so I can reproduce them at a faster speed next time or what have you. And then, you know, from that, I have a, uh, a drafting arm, a table, uh, not a table, but a, uh, on the wall of Vemco. Have you ever heard of a Vemco? Yeah. It's an engineering. Yeah, it's what you see. In, it's what you used to see in most big commercial architects' office. You'd see all the people. It's basically looks like it's a drawing arm. It's a, it's a, it's a T-square on a head on a rotating head? I have a bar that travels across, it goes across the um, wall. So I have a board mounted on the wall. There's a track at the top and then the arm goes across. On the arm, there's two right. rulers. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a... And, and it's super accurate. If you tune it in, it's like half, you know, you could do half degrees almost, it's crazy. Wow. Um, so, I'll do the, you know, the tough drawings, the mechanical drawings on that. 
Um, and that usually gets me to the finished product. And then I'm never opposed to changing yeah, things as we go along. my question because you have a, it sounds like you have a very precise process for getting you to the beginning. But, uh, you know, often you get into a project and you go, well, I didn't see that or that doesn't work at all. And here's a surprise. <laughs> and and then, then you have to go back to the drawing board. I'm notorious for finishing at something. You know, it's late. I get to the photographer. It's the first time I've got a chance to sit down and absorb it, look at it, think about it. And then I'm like, oh, I want to change that. I want to do that. You know, and um, I just finished a table. I posted it before I went to Mexico. And, you know, it's upstairs um, getting some color. I let it get some sunlight to yellow out a little bit. And uh, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't like that sharp edge on the corners there. I mean, like I got to bevel that or something. Is it on this one? I'll get it on the next one. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a process. I so one of the things on that process part is when I used to go out to CCAC to teach. Let me just interrupt. That'd be the California College of Arts and Crafts for right, and they've changed their name now to Art and Design or something, right? But that was a place that Tom Hucker was teaching, and for some reason he couldn't go out one summer, and his shopmate is is my buddy Kelly Fawcett. And Callie asked me to go out with him and help him teach a chair-making class because we needed an extra set of hands. So we'd go out and we'd get all the students to do sort of like my Wentworth experience where you all make the same parts. Everybody kind of lines up and makes the same parts. But we made these parts so that you could make a lot of changes to them afterwards. But everybody did the same sizing of legs, backs, and seats. We did a limo seat. But the legs could be changed after they did the joinery. So I designed a chair while I worked with the students. I did this chair myself. I call it my Sanford chair. And I've now done something like six or seven iterations of that chair. It's still evolving. You know, I, I'm just tweaking it here, tweaking it there. I just got a fresh commission for more. So we'll see where I go on the next set. I like doing that with work too. I've got a series of meditation chairs and I make them a little bit different every time. Yeah, it, it, right. it, it's nice to be able to work kind of within your own vocabulary. You make stuff a little different. So you, do you find yourself making some, somewhat the same things again in a sense? Like I've done case clocks, and it's about the case. It's not really about the clock. I put a yeah. clock in it, but it's really about the case. But I keep coming back to it and doing it a little differently. I've got a console table, a split leg console table I've been making for years, and it keeps evolving. I keep going back to it. I find that. Do you find that, that you go back to – it might look different, but it's still kind of like the same uh, design idea? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do find that. Sometimes it's hard for me I'll, – I'll be hard on myself. It's hard for me to break away from kind of a mold of the kind of stuff I like to make, but then I'm like, well – but I'm making it. And these, these subtle variations kind of make me happy. Yeah. So I used to find fault in the fact that I couldn't crack the nut that I am. But now I'm just like, ah, you know, it's fine. But I do. And I, I yeah, I don't stray too far from my own design aesthetic, even though I try. It, it is what it is. I, I've learned to enjoy it. You know where I do that, where I stray a little bit is when I make gifts for people. Ah, yeah. Because I don't have, it's not for an audience. Oh, it's sort of for yeah. that person. And I try something different or new. I see, you know, I'm always stealing ideas, but I'm, I guarantee you every time I steal an idea, by the time it goes from here into here and it comes out here and comes out this side of my brain, it's yeah. totally different. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even get it. I actually stopped making functional furniture as a way of breaking myself out of that mold. 
These days, I rarely, if ever, make furniture. It's only on a once in a million years commission. I just do sculpture these days. And that allowed me to break wow. my, or at least start to break my own patterns because I just got sick of myself. <laughs> well, you know, I've always said furniture is indoor sculpture. And, and it is. That's a good way to look at it. And, you know, I've been doing some sculpture too. Um, some of it's conceptual, some of it's just abstract. And it's really freeing because I don't have to really do an accurate drawing and there's not a lot of joinery in it, so to speak. It's more like playing with fun woods and... Much more improvisation kind of. Yes. It's also a nice tool in getting away from that sort of uh, finicky uh, precision that we really sort of wear like a yoke over our necks. It's like, oh my God, that joint doesn't fit perfectly or oh my God, that's just not... You know, that's just not precise or neat enough. And uh, as as the the reference I use with Rob quite a bit, it, it allows you to put some putty in your dovetails and it, it's okay. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, malady for woodworkers to let go and be free and open and try and figure out what details matter and what details don't matter. And it's an ongoing process. But... Um, Speaking of ongoing processes and what we're kind of working on lately, I've got a, a couple questions for you and starting to wrap it up. And the first one is, uh, how have the last two years the pandemic treated you? How have, uh, how have you, uh, how has your psyche gone? How has your work gone? How have you, how have you managed in the last two years? In a way, I feel guilty. And in another way, I understand some changes. Just before the pandemic, the fall of 2019, two of our daughters got married and my father died in between those two. And so then we entered the pandemic and I actually had been in Costa Rica. I flew back into the country like with, you know, just at the head of the pandemic. So I got back and I work alone. I yeah. do my thing. We, you know, we go to our studios. We love our solitude. Indeed. And so I feel guilty in that regard. Um, as the pandemic went on, um, that was twenty, yeah, twenty twenty. We've since had two grandchildren, two babies born, and in between those two babies, my mother died. And neither of my parents died from COVID. My mother was in a nursing home uh, for a long time, and they really ran a tight ship, and that was great. Um, but just these these life changes kind of focused me. I guess, more into my own world, you know, and then my work started to pick up. I've been selling work. I'm just doing all my own commissions. I've spent my last 35 years doing a lot of different things to stay alive. A lot of cabinet work. I did production woodworking. <laughs> um, I taught. Um, I made my own stuff. Um, I tried, you know, I've done a ton and ton of craft shows. So I've been, you know, diversified. And all of a sudden this year, it's just all about me and my designs and, I'm making pieces that I designed 10 and 14 years ago. I'm getting orders for things wow. like this. It's I feel guilty because it's kind of going well while the rest of the world's going to shit. I do find, though, um, one of the effects on me is I, I'm sensitive to the anger. Um, you know, I just flew back from Mexico. There's people fighting with a stewardess on the plane about wearing a mask. But I find myself a little angry with the way the world is going, yeah. you know. But I was angry before I... You know, the last administration just didn't logically make sense to me at all. And I think for me, the anger's really affected my work. It's really affected my ability to work. And I've sort of taken a little sabbatical from doing work 
while I deal with my anger. Um, it's, uh, it's just interesting, but I don't think you should feel guilty for being successful during the pandemic. I mean, I, I think uh, in many ways, figuring out how to survive and, and stay whole is, uh, is an attribute. Well, and, and, and you've mentioned too that, you know, in 35 years, you've been working to get to this point. I've, I've, I've made and sold more of my art pieces this last year um, than I ever have. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I I've, I've kind of find it happening the same way that, that you are, Mark. It's a confluence of circumstances. Exactly. I mean, if, if, if that's, that's just a great way to, to, to talk about this whole episode <laughs> that we're talking about. It's the confluence of circumstances. <laughs> but it's like you just said, though, you know, I've worked 35 years for this point. It's odd that it comes at this moment. And I hope it sustains itself going forward because this was, you know, this lifestyle, this kind of, um, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that I've chosen to do. And I want it to be successful if not monetarily, at least, you know, um, uh, the word just went in my, you know, in terms of my fulfillment. Actually, yeah. So in wrapping it up, Mark, uh, we just sort of like, uh, what's your what's your latest body of work about and where do you see yourself going forward? I'm still doing the furniture and I do love it. I do love it. And I, I could see, I have a bucket list now. Okay. So silly things, but like I've never made a pool table. <laughs> That's um, great. <laughs> I, I actually would like to make a crossbow at some point. Um, and, um, you know, there's a few other things on the bucket list of oddball woodworking projects that, you know, would be fun to do. Um, but I've been like you, Eric, I've been doing a lot more sculpture and I've been showing it locally, um, different venues, art associations and small museums and such that have, uh, you know, uh, uh, membership shows and what have you and so um and i've been having a good time with that um building a nice inventory <laughs> what i'll do with it but i just sold a, a wall piece uh last month that i've had for i don't know six years i never know when these things are going to leave i don't know i don't know when they're going to find their home yeah it's unpredictable and i've experienced that too <laughs> Right. So we kind of just plot along as long as it thrills me, as long as it motivates me. And this is where I do get my energy. I'll, I'll try something else. And I like to think that I'm getting a lot more complicated. I've, I've put my 10,000 hours in. All right. I can make things. Um, I'm not the best woodworker and I don't want to be the best wood. I want to be good enough, be there with everybody else. I want to play the game. You know, it's an old baseball thing. You're on the field with everybody, but when you're in, you're up at bat, you're by yourself. And um, I kind of use that. I kind of try to do better at this at bat than my last at bat. That's, I'm competing with myself each time, trying to do, take it another step further, try to understand it a little bit better. Just doing this talk with you guys and the process that I went through to kind of put my thoughts together and all is just great. I mean, I understand myself even more today than I did few months ago. I've been mulling this over. Uh, you gave me a lot of time to hang <laughs> myself. <laughs> well, and that seems like uh, the perfect place to wrap it up. And we'd really like to thank Mark Day. Oh, God. Uh, help me, Mark. Help me, Del Mark, please. Judas. Or Del Giudice. De Del Useless? We'd like to thank Mark Del Giudice for joining us on Why Make. And as we always end our episodes, Why Make? 
because we want to. Why make? <laughs> Thanks, Mark. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.